Well, hello again, folks. Thank you for being a part of this. It's an honor to be able to have this time with you, even in the midst of these difficult circumstances. I'm, I'm sure that there's still opportunity for joy. I know that frustration's probably on the rise, but there's also the prospect of joy. So let me ask you, what in the last couple of weeks has brought joy to your life or even laughter, put a smile on your face? I had the opportunity of being able to kind of go back and take a look at a video, YouTube video, of one of my favorite commercials. As a matter of fact, this is probably one of the greatest favorite commercials of all time, the Super Bowl commercial back in 2011 as it was promoting the Volkswagen Passat. You probably remember that. And it was about this little kid dressed up in the Darth Vader costume and with the thematic Darth Vader music. This kid is moving throughout the house trying to exert the power of the force on a dryer, on a dog, on a doll with no effect. And this little kid's frustrated, even trying to, to move and ha have the force move on a, a plate of, of a sandwich of, of lunch. He hears his dad coming home. The dad's car shuts off and the dad gets out of the car and the kid realizes, here's my big moment. He runs out, dismisses the dad, bypasses, no hugs, and automatically gets into the Darth Vader position, his hands trying to exert power on the force while the dad's on the inside of the house. And as he's doing that very carefully, all of a sudden, the lights of the car flicker and the engine goes on and the little boy jumps back, completely surprised. And the camera goes to the dad who's in the kitchen with his hand on the remote because the dad has remote controlled and activated the car. But the little boy doesn't know that. He's moving back and forth like, I, I can't believe I just did that. Some of the comments that I saw in the YouTube on this was that LOL, that father, stupid dad thinking that he actually started the car. The, actual, the idea there is, is that this little boy didn't realize he had that kind of power. How do we access that kind of power to be able to do things more than just affect dolls and dryers and dogs? Especially in times like this. Last week we talked about the fact that Jesus Christ has this kind of power, but he's transferred that power to us to make a difference, a kingdom difference in our world. And like I said, at this particular point, it's probably necessary, especially as we know that frustration and fatigue and fear are, are on the rise. Some of us are just, we're just, we fed up, had it. And how do we access the kind of power that helps us to move forward with making a kingdom difference? Last week, our big idea was this. Dynamic life was designed to be passed on by those who possess it. Forest Hill's vision and mission is that we are wanting to build bridges that connect people to dynamic life. Here's a big idea for today, that dynamic life flows only through those lives surrendered to Christ. Dynamic life flows only through those lives that are surrendered to Christ. So here's the question. How do you acquire the dynamic life? How do you acquire that kind of power that makes a kingdom difference even in the midst of difficult circumstances? Today's passage is actually a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. This is the series that we've been going through on trading up. And at this particular point, chapter 8, we've been through seven chapters, and Mark has tried to do this masterful job. At, in verse 1 of chapter 1, he says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it seems as if he's making this case for seven chapters to actually affirm and prove the identity and the priority of Jesus Christ. It's now at chapter 8, halfway through this book. And the disciples are at a turning point because Jesus is about to clarify his identity in a powerful way as well as his priority and his expectations for what it means to follow him. This is important for us as well. As a matter of fact, this could be a turning point for some of you today. 
I'm going to offer you an opportunity at the end of this message to actually register the response of this being a turning point for you in your faith pilgrimage in Jesus Christ, whether it's maybe for your first time or maybe just to say, I'm in, this is who I believe and this is what I'm about, or maybe even to say, I need some help. So be ready at the end of this message. I want to give you that chance of being able to register how this may be a turning point for you. But the context of the passage in chapter 8 of Mark is that it's set within this beautiful setting of the Caesarea Philippi, this city that has been built by the Herods, dedicated to the Caesars. It's a city that is also has this rich cultic association with the nature god Pan and the other Greek nymphs and gods and such, but it displays the splendor and the authority of Rome, this beautiful city that sources the Jordan River. Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples, and he's choosing that particular place, this place that is about the authority of Rome, Jesus is asking his disciples some questions about how they see him, the God, the living God, the Messiah within that context. So as has been our habit to do over the last several weeks, actually for a long time, in our shared reverence for the word of God, for the reading of it, if you are able, wherever you may be, let me ask you to stand to your feet and let's take a look at this passage of Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 27. I'll read it carefully. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And Jesus strictly warned them to tell no one about him. And then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But Jesus, turning around and looking at the disciples, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. And then calling the crowd along with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart will be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. So, Jesus Christ is going to bring some clarity to his identity, as well as what that means that clears this pathway for us to acquire the dynamic life. The first thing he does is deals with this aspect of his identity. 
his identity as the Messiah. And so he starts off by asking the, the, the disciples about the public opinion poll. What are people saying about me? And sure enough, the people are saying, yeah, we, we realize that Jesus is good. This is what the disciples have, have deduced. They're, they're saying that Jesus is powerful, his teachings, his miracles. So yeah, he's like one of the prophets, reincarnation maybe, if you will, of, of either John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. In other words, they're saying Jesus is an extraordinary man, a good teacher, powerful, does an awful lot of things, eh, but not quite the God thing. They're not, they've not gone that far. They've identified that he's a good, powerful man, and that's about it. But then Jesus directs the question to those who have been walking with him now for a while, his closest friends, his disciples. He says, but you, but, but, but you, who do you say that I am? It's very interesting that Jesus is not really interested in what other people are saying. And even for Mark, Mark has now built this case for seven chapters and it's now leading up to this climax of the clarification of who Jesus is to those who've walked with him. Peter, the lead disciple, speaking for all the other disciples, says, you are the Messiah. When you take a look at Matthew's recording of this, you are the Messiah, son of the living God. Now, you gotta let that one sit there for a second. Folks, that is a phenomenal, monumental proclamation. Philippians chapter two says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess. Peter saying out loud at this point, based on what he is seeing, based on what he's experienced, he is saying, you are the anointed one of God. There should be like, bells and there should be like angels singing, earthquakes, phenomenal things are taking place because that is a monumental confession to make. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, blessed are you. <laughs> blessed are you. You didn't come to that conclusion by your own reasoning, but by the divine self-disclosure of almighty God, you have actually spoken out what God has inspired in about the truth of who I am. The anointed one of God. And then Jesus strictly warns his disciples not to say anything about that. We'll get that to that in a second. Folks, it's absolutely important that if we're going to access dynamic life and the power to make a kingdom difference, it starts with a clear understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Jesus then moves to the next aspect, and that is a clarity as to his priority. Exactly how is he going to fulfill his ministry? And this is where we now get some problems. Jesus basically says to the disciples and tells them what's about to happen. He says that the son of man is going to face, I'm going to deal with suffering, rejection, and I want to be put to death. That kind of explanation falls in direct contradiction to the expectations the disciples have about how the Messiah is going to get it done. Even though they've clarified who Jesus is as a Messiah, how he's going to do that, what kind of Messiah he is, and that this Messiah from Jesus' own profession is one who will suffer, that does not compute with their expectation of who they expect the Messiah to be. So much so that Peter goes to Jesus and actually pulls him aside as if to talk him. And G Peter corrects the Christ, starts managing the Messiah. Again, in Matthew, Peter takes Jesus and actually says, that ain't happening. No, 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 no way. That ain't happening. Jesus, you're, 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 that, that, that's not the way it's supposed to happen. That's not the way it's supposed to go. But give him some credit a little bit to understand. They've been riding this wave of popularity, this wave of power, this wave of victory with Jesus. 
they have been settling the idea that this Messiah is going to set them free from Roman occupation, from rule. They have not really fully understood how Jesus is going to actually set men free to express the benefits of the kingdom of God. And that's what they're thinking. That's what's going on in their heads, which is probably one of the reasons why Jesus didn't want his disciples say anything about his identity because he knew that they probably didn't get it. As a matter of fact, if you take a look, this is the first time Jesus tells them what's going to happen. In Mark chapter 9, he does it again for the second time. And after that, the disciples are arguing about which one of them is the greatest. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus for the third time tells them what's going to happen. And James and John are saying, hey, can we get a seat on either side of you? In other words, they don't get it. But sometimes we don't. We don't get it. And Jesus, after hearing this rebuke from Peter, the scripture says he looks around and sees the disciples and sees two things. Number one, he probably sees that the disciples are all in agreement with Peter. They're like, yeah, this, this idea of a suffering, a suffering Messiah, that doesn't compute. And so he realizes that they're probably all agreeing with Peter in their assessment that the Messiah is not supposed to suffer. But here's something else I think Jesus notices. Something they can't see. He can detect the slithering, seductive presence and influence of Satan bringing back again that same similar temptation he experienced in the wilderness. This diabolical opportunist who in the wilderness told Jesus, Jesus, check out all the kingdoms of the world. I will give you all the kingdoms if you will bow down to me. In other words, Satan was saying, let's shortcut the pathway to glory. Let's go around the suffering. If you'll just bow to me, I'll make it easy for you. And Jesus realizes that that kind of influence that kind of temptation for Jesus is not coming through demonic opposition. It's not coming through persecution. It's not coming through trouble. That temptation is coming from a friend. A friend who has probably good intentions for Jesus to protect him, to encourage him. But a friend who is not on the plan or the will of God. And so Jesus knowing that the disciples have been infected with this seduction from Satan and Peter, Jesus has got to put that down quickly. And so he speaks to Satan's influence in Peter and says to Satan the same word that he uses in the wilderness. You, he probably says you know, in his own, you snake in the grass, I see you. I see you. Go away behind me. Your interests are not the interests of God, but of human affairs. Go away behind me. It's a rebuke. It's a strong rebuke because Jesus sees the same temptation and is confronting Satan's influence in the lives and the heart and the minds of his disciples as well. He's not calling Peter Satan, but Jesus is acknowledging the satanic influence where sometimes our desire for our kingdom on our term actually falls into opposition with the way and the work of God. And Jesus puts that down and calls it what it is. It must have been a slap in the face to Peter and the disciples who didn't get it. And then after that, Jesus then with the disciples and a crowd, he is clarifying the conditions of what it means to follow him. He basically says, whoever's going to follow after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow. Whoever tries to save his life will lose it, but whoever seeks to lose his life for my sake, for me and the gospel, he will find it. 
There's a confusion about what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus is clarifying, here are the conditions for what it means to follow me. Number one, it's self-denial. It's actually looking at our own preferences and pleasures and philosophies and priorities and submitting them under the authority of Christ to say those things that are self-centered, self-driven, that we are saying no to those things because we are saying yes to something greater. Jesus is calling for people to live their life on his terms, not theirs. That requires denying of self, not giving ourself the room to have its own way because we surrendered ourselves to Jesus. But he also says it also requires cross-bearing. And there's some confusion about cross-bearing. As a matter of fact, one particular man said to his friend, he said, um, I have this explosive temper. I guess that's my cross I got to bear, which the friend said, no, friend, that's not your cross. That's your sin. Listen, cross-bearing is the public identification with the cause of Christ that says we're willing to pay a price. In those days when a person carried a cross, it was a public thing. Carrying a cross, you realize that people saw you as an opposition to the prevalent prevailing force. Well, carrying a cross is where people choose to be publicly identified with the work of God in Jesus Christ. He says, whoever wants to lose his life for me and the gospel, the ministry of Jesus Christ to bring the kingdom benefit of heaven to humanity, to the world. Why is this important? And I, and I really do believe this is where I think there's a turning point. Because right now in the midst of this time of adversity, some of us would think that adversity actually creates problems. And yeah, I can see where it actually, actually does. But you also realize that sometimes adversity exposes the problems that are already there. We didn't realize when things were pretty good. For instance, have some of you discovered that in being sheltered and quarantined and isolated, that the quality of your faith is different. How you love people is different. Patience, tolerance, what you pursue, that becomes different. Sometimes adversity magnifies the gaps in our faith. But here's the thing, that can be a good thing. That can be a good thing to realize in the midst of adversity, the character and quality of our true faith. Because then if we are aware of where those gaps are, where we're falling short, then we can receive the help and the strength and the power in Jesus Christ, who is a part of that process, to reassert and reformat and readjust our lives in a way that's in harmony with who he is and what he wants to see happen. By the way, I left something out. When Jesus had said, as far as the disciples responding to the fact that Jesus said he was going to suffer, be rejected, and, and be killed, I left something out, like they did, because there was a fourth thing that Jesus mentioned that apparently never even got noticed. Jesus said not only would he suffer, be rejected, and killed, but what? That he would rise on the third day. In other words, part of the element to his glory was not just the suffering but his resurrection. They didn't see that. As a matter of fact, they didn't understand it even after he died and even after he rose from the dead, they didn't get that because they had this view. Sometimes our view of how Jesus is to defend and promote our kingdom 
keeps us not only from the glory of suffering and the victory that's to come, but it can keep us mired in an expectation that Jesus is going to promote our own kingdom. One of the things I've discovered painfully and personally is that some of the greatest enemies in my life, it's not Satan merely. The greatest competition in my heart, and this is what Paul Tripp said, and I agree with this, the greatest competition in my heart is a preference for my own kingdom. You discovered that as well? And sometimes adversity magnifies that. As a matter of fact, sometimes adversity doesn't bring out the best in us. It brings out the beast in the recognition that we really prefer our own kingdom. And if anything happens that circumvents the freedom for us to express authority of our kingdom, we are going to have a problem with that. Folks, adversity provides an opportunity for us to experience a shift, a turning point in the character and the quality of our faith that enables us to more fully embrace the divine and dynamic life that there is in Christ. Sometimes, however, it's got to go through the difficulties. There is glory in the story, but sometimes it's through the gory. In other words, through the not-so-pleasant aspects that actually God uses to refine our faith and to empower our lives for his purpose and for our welfare as well. Which is also the reason I think that in this particular time, it's important for us, therefore, to nail down what is the clear conditions of what it means for us to follow Jesus Christ. First of all, I would say this. To follow Jesus Christ is going to require us to make sure that we are settled on his identity. To be settled on his identity. Here's the question. It's the same question he asked that I want to ask you. Not who do other people say that he is, but who do you say that he is? In this time where we are not as free as we want to be, this is a great time for you and me to ask the question, what do we really believe about Jesus Christ? Who is he really? Is he someone that we're expecting to kind of get us back to our normal? Or is he the Messiah, the anointed one, God in the flesh that has come to bring his kingdom? Do we believe Jesus to be the incarnate God, born, died, resurrected, and reigning. I'm actually asking you, who do you say that he is and is who Jesus said he is, is he that Jesus for you? The disciples had an issue with the difference between Jesus being Messiah and Master. Who is Jesus for you? This is the time for us to become even more settled. This period of adversity is going to pass. And when we move back into whatever normal will be, I hope that we move into it with a greater clarity on his identity, that we're settled on it. That no matter what happens in our life, that the clarity of who he is remains steadfast. That's number one, settled on his identity. Number two, that we're also surrendered to his priority, to his authority. Surrender to his authority. This is where the saying no to ourselves shows up. Where are you adjusting your life to his leadership? I, I say that, 
I say that solely because I struggle with that. Saying no to preferences, are we having problems saying no to how we relate to people the way that we want to rather than the way that, of what they need? Are we saying no to the ways that we are squandering our time and our relationships, seeking illicit pleasures and self-medication to be able to make ourselves feel better in the midst of what's taking place? Are, are we bypassing the satisfaction we can receive from Jesus because we're seeking satisfaction from other things, other people? Where are we saying no so that we can maintain a yes for Christ? How are we adjusting our life to his leadership, understanding full well that Jesus wants, he wants it all. C.S. Lewis and his demands, an understanding of Christ's demands on our life in mere Christianity, he says this. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think are innocent as well as the ones you think are wicked, the whole outfit, and I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I'll give you myself. My own will shall become yours. It's his intention for us, for us in this period to clarify our submission, our surrender to the authority of Christ in everything. Those places where we're trying to bypass suffering or trying to shortcut our way to glory by compromising morals, ethics, stewardship of the resources that have been given to us. How are we following the leadership of Christ? And then finally, I would say this, is that clarifying the conditions is that we share his priority. We share his priority. Where are you, where are we partnering with Jesus in his mission? How are we leveraging our life, our talents, our resources, our relationships? How are we leveraging them in a way that promotes and furthers the kingdom of God and the difference that kingdom of God can make on earth as it is in heaven? How are we giving ourselves to making sure that Jesus' mission is being completed through us as well, even in the area, for instance, of serving? That even as we serve other people, that we do so with a Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, kingdom-oriented concern for a person's eternal welfare beginning with this life. Because it's for the ministry of the gospel, that influence around the entire world that connects people to dynamic life in Christ. As a matter of fact, one of the challenges that Forest Hill has is that the goal is that before 2021, that each of us would have had a spiritual conversation with a person who's far away from God. How are you doing in that? How am I doing? Are we... Have we identified that person? Are we praying for that opportunity of being able to have that spiritual conference? I've got people in my mind of folks that I want to be able to reach out to and praying and asking God for the opportunity to be faithful to do so. Sharing his priority is a part of carrying the cross, denying oneself, and living a life that the dynamic life of Christ can flow through as we've possessed it as well too. This can be a turning point 
for us, for you and for me. Moving beyond this identification of who Jesus is and ownership of the priority, his authority, and moving forward to say, then, Lord, I want to be all in. It's not just Forest Hill's mission. It's the mission of Jesus. It's the person of Jesus as Messiah, as master. I'm all in. So here's what I want to ask you to consider. I want to give you a chance of being able to respond to today being a turning point for you. Wherever you may be, however old you might be, with opportunities to say, yes, I I need to clarify who he is. I, I own it. I believe Jesus is exactly who he says he is. I've gotten kind of confused because of the circumstances that are going on. There are some, some things that I'm doing or thinking or seeing or that I shouldn't be, and, and I need to say no to those things so I can maintain a pure focus. And I'm ready to say, Lord, I, I need your help. And by the way, I am not asking you to, pr- to promise a perfect performance. I'm calling you and me to surrender ourselves to being perfected by grace, to do that with his help not on our own and not simply just for him, but with him. So here's the thing. In a few moments, I'm going to pray. And then after I pray, the worship team is going to sing a song of surrender. While they're singing, I'm going to ask you to either type in into the chat of, of, on this broadcast or to actually text in a number that you'll see on the screen responses of a couple different ways. Number one, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and throughout this process, and even what you've heard today, kind of stirs up within you the desire to say, you know something, I may have lost sight on some things because of where I am, but you know, in light of this message, I am reaffirming my commitment to Christ as Lord, as Savior, as Messiah. I want to I wanna make sure that I want to partner with him in ministry, that I'd like for you to text to the number all in. I'm all in. Just that. So we can celebrate that with you because this can be a milestone marker for you to say, nope, he is who he says he is. His authority, I want that in my life and I want to be a part. Just text in, I'm all in or put that in the chat. We want to celebrate that for you. Or maybe if you're going to do that for the very first time that you're saying, I am accepting Jesus Christ as master and Messiah, then you can text in all in for the first time. We want to celebrate that with you. But if you're here and you're listening and you're, you've heard this and you're like, I'm not sure, I'm on the verge, I'm on the edge, I would like a conversation about that. Then text to the same number, text, let's talk. And we can begin a conversation with you right there today. Every single one of you, I'm encouraging to register your response as a turning point that says, from this point forward, I want my life to be lived in a way that reflects the presence of Christ. And here's the thing. When you text that in, please understand, you're not just texting that alone. That is something that, even though we're isolated, we're doing that together as a body to say, I'm in, or I want to be in, and I need some help. Folks, this is an amazing adventure that we're on. And Jesus Christ has promised that with his power, with his presence, that he will see us through, providing everything we need to cope with whatever life's challenges that we may face, that we're facing even right now, even beyond. But requires us with an understanding of who he is, or with a desire to understand who he is, to surrender to his authority and to share in his priority that we can experience connecting people to the dynamic life of Jesus Christ as that life flows through us. So let's pray and then give you a chance of responding. Heavenly Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you for this opportunity for us to 
think through where we are and who you are in our life through the ministry of Jesus Christ. And right now, I pray that, Lord, you would work and minister to those who've listened and that you'd lead them to maybe drawing the line in the sand today and establishing from this particular point forward a different way of living your purpose with power. For those that may not know Christ and they may not be there yet, I pray that, Lord, they would respond just even to say, I want a conversation. Let's talk. And so, Lord, now move. Move and help us to respond now in a way that can be a lifetime of responding to Christ as our master, as the Messiah. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you, while we sing, respond and let us know how we can pray for you and encourage you in this ongoing journey of following Christ.